Chapter 5, Part 1 of the Boy Scouts Book of Campfire Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kurt Troutwine. The Boy Scouts Book of Campfire Stories. Chapter 5, The Weight of Obligation, Part 1, by Rex Beach. This is the story of a burden. The tale of a load that irked a strong man's shoulders. To those who do not know the North it may seem strange. But to those who understand the humors of men in solitude, and the extravagant vagaries that steal in upon their minds as fog drifts with the night, it will not appear unusual. There are spirits in the wilderness, eerie forces which play pranks, some droll or whimsical, others grim. Johnny Cantwell and Mortimer Grant were partners, trailmates, brothers in soul if not in blood. The ebb and flood of frontier life had brought them together. Its hardships had united them until they were as one. They were something of a mystery to each other, neither having surrendered all his confidence, and because of this they retained their mutual attraction. They had met by accident, but they remained together by desire. The spirit of adventure bubbled merrily within them, and it led them into curious byways. It was this which sent them northward from the States in the dead of winter, on the heels of the Stony River strike. It was this which induced them to the land of Katmai, instead of Iliamna, whither their land journey should have commenced. There are two routes over the coast range, the captain of the Dora told them, and only two. Iliamna Pass is low and easy, but the distance is longer than by way of Katmai. I can land you at either place. Katmai is pretty tough, isn't it? Grant inquired. We've understood it's the worst place in Alaska. Cantwell's eyes were eager. It's awful. Nobody travels it except natives, and they don't like it. Now, Iliamna, we'll try Katmai. Eh, Mort? Sure. They don't come hard enough for us, Cap. We'll see if it's as bad as it's painted. So, one gray January morning, they were landed on a frozen beach. Their outfit was flung ashore through the surf. The lifeboat pulled away and the Dora disappeared after a farewell toot of her whistle. Their last glimpse of her showed the captain waving goodbye, and the purser flapping a red tablecloth at them from the afterdeck. Cheerful place, this, Grant remarked, as he noted the desolate surroundings of dune and hillside. The beach itself was black and raw where the surf had washed it, but elsewhere all was white, save for the thickets of alder and willow which protruded nakedly. The bay was a little more than a hollow scooped out of the Alaskan range. Along the foothills behind there was a belt of spruce and cottonwood and birch. It was a lonely and apparently unpeopled wilderness in which they had been set down. Seems good to be back in the north again, doesn't it? said Cantwell cheerily. I'm tired of the booze and the streetcars and the dames and all that civilized stuff. I'd rather be broke in Alaska with you than a banker's son back home. Soon, a globular Russian half-breed, the Katmai trader, appeared among the dunes, and with him were some native villagers. That night, the partner slept in a snug log cabin, the roof of which was chained down with old ship's cables. Patellin, the fat little trader, explained that Ruse and Katmai had a way of sailing off to seaward when the wind blew. He listened to their plan of crossing the divide and nodded. It could be done, of course, he agreed, but they were foolish to try it when the Iliamna route was open. Still, now that they were here, he would find dogs for them, and a guide. The village hunters were out after meat, however, 
and until they returned the white men would need to wait in patience. There followed several days of idleness, during which Cantwell and Grant amused themselves around the village, teasing the squaws, playing games with the boys, and flirting harmlessly with the girls, one of whom, in particular, was not unattractive. She was perhaps three-quarters a lute, the other quarter being plain coquette, and, having been educated at the town of Kodiak, she knew the ways and the wiles of the white men. Cantwell approached her and she met his extravagant advances more than halfway. They were getting along nicely together when Grant, in a spirit of fun, entered the game and won her fickle smiles for himself. He joked his partner unmercifully, and Johnny accepted defeat gracefully, never giving the matter a second thought. When the hunters returned, dogs were bought, a guide was hired, and, a week after landing, the friends were camped at Timberline awaiting a favorable moment for their dash across the range. Above them, white hillsides rose in irregular leaps to the gash in the sawtooth barrier which formed the pass. Below them, a short valley led down to Katmai and the sea. The day was bright, the air clear. Nevertheless, after the guide had stared up at the peaks for a time, he shook his head, then re-entered the tent and lay down. The mountains were smoking. From their tops streamed a gossamer veil which the travelers knew to be drifting snow clouds carried by the wind. It meant delay, but they were patient. They were up and going on the following morning, however, with the Indian in the lead. There was no trail. The hills were steep. In places they were forced to unload the sled and hoist their outfit by means of ropes, and as they mounted higher the snow deepened. It lay like loose sand, only lighter. It shoved ahead of the sled in a feathery mass. The dogs wallowed in it and were unable to pull, hence the greater part of the work devolved upon the men. Once above the foothills and into the range proper, the going became more level, but the snow remained knee-deep. The Indian broke trail stolidly. The partner strained at the sled, which hung back like a leaden thing. By afternoon, the dogs had become disheartened and refused to heed the whip. There was neither fuel nor running water, and therefore the party did not pause for luncheon. The men were sweating profusely from their exertions and had long since become parched with thirst, but the dry snow was like chalk and scoured their throats. Cantwell was the first to show the effects of his unusual exertions, for not only had he assumed a lion's share of the work, but the last few months of easy living had softened his muscles, and in consequence his vitality was quickly spent. His undergarments were drenched. He was fearfully dry inside. A terrible thirst seemed to penetrate his whole body. He was forced to rest frequently. Grant eyed him with some concern, finally inquiring. Feel bad, Johnny? Cantwell nodded. Their fatigue made both men economical of language. What's the matter? Thirsty. The former could barely speak. There won't be any water till we get across. We'll have to stand it. They resumed their duties. The Indian swish-swished ahead, as if wading through a sea of swans down. The dogs followed listlessly. The partners leaned against the stubborn load. A faint breath finally came out of the north, causing Grant and the guide to study the sky anxiously. Cantwell was too weary to heed the increasing cold. The snow on the slopes above began to move here and there, on exposed ridges. It rose in clouds and puffs. The clean-cut outlines of the hills became obscured as by a fog. The languid wind bit cruelly. 
After a time, Johnny fell back upon the sled and exclaimed, I'm all in, Mort. Don't seem to have the guts. He was pale. His eyes were tortured. He scooped a mitten full of snow and raised it to his lips, then sped it out, still dry. Here, brace up. In a panic of apprehension at his collapse, Grant shook him. He had never known Johnny to fail like this. Take a drink. It'll do you good. He drew a bottle from one of the dunnage bags, and Campbell seized it avidly. It was wet. It would quench his thirst, he thought. Before Mort could check him, he had drunk a third of the contents. The effect was almost instantaneous, for Campbell's stomach was empty and his tissues seemed to absorb the liquor like a dry sponge. His fatigue fell away. He became suddenly strong and vigorous again. But before he had gone a hundred yards, the reaction followed. First his mind grew thick. Then his limbs became unmanageable and his muscles flabby. He was drunk. Yet it was a strange and dangerous intoxication against which he struggled desperately. He fought it for perhaps a quarter of a mile before it mastered him. Then he gave up. Both men knew that stimulants were never taken on the trail, but they had never stopped to reason why, and even now they did not attribute Johnny's breakdown to the brandy. After a while he stumbled and fell. Then, the cool snow being grateful to his face, he sprawled there motionless until Mort dragged him to the sled. He stared at his partner in perplexity and laughed foolishly. The wind was increasing, darkness was near. They had not yet reached the bearing slope. Something in the drunken man's face frightened Grant, and, extracting a ship's biscuit from the grub box, he said, hurriedly, Here, Johnny, get something under your belt, quick. Cantwell obediently munched the hard cracker, but there was no moisture on his tongue. His throat was paralyzed. The crumbs crowded themselves from the corners of his lips. He tried with limber fingers to stuff them down or to assist the muscular action of swallowing, but finally expelled them in a cloud. Mort drew a parka-hood over his partner's head, for the wind cut like a scythe and the dogs were turning trail into it, digging holes in the snow for protection. The air about them was like yeast. The light was fading. The Indian snowshoed his way back, advising a quick camp until the storm abated. But to this suggestion Grant refused to listen knowing only too well the peril of such a course. Nor did he dare take Johnny on the sled, since the fellow was half asleep already, but instead whipped up the dogs and urged his companion to follow as best he could. When Cantwell fell for a second time, he returned, dragged him forward, and tied his wrist firmly yet loosely to the load. The storm was pouring over them now, like water out of a spout. It seared and blinded them. Its touch was like that of a flame. Nevertheless, they struggled on into the smother, making what headway they could. The Indian led, pulling at the end of the rope. Grant strained at the sled and hoarsely encouraged the dogs. Cantwell stumbled and lurched in the rear like an unwilling prisoner. When he fell, his companion lifted him, then beat him, cursed him, tried in every way to rouse him from his lethargy. After an interminable time, they found they were descending, and this gave them heart to plunge ahead more rapidly. The dogs began to trot as the sled overran them. They rushed blindly into gullies, fetching up at the bottom in a tangle, and Johnny followed in a nevertheless stupefied condition. He was dragged like a sack of flour, for his legs were limp, and he lacked muscular control. But every dash, every fall, every quick descent drove the sluggish blood through his veins and cleared his brain momentarily. 
Such moments were fleeting, however. Much of the time his mind was blank, and it was only by mechanical effort that he fought off unconsciousness. He had vague memories of many beatings at Mort's hands, of the slippery, clean-swept ice of a stream over which he limply skidded, of being carried into a tent where a candle flickered and a stove roared. Grant was holding something hot to his lips, and then... It was morning. He was weak and sick. He felt as if he had awakened from a hideous dream. I played out, didn't I? He queried, wonderingly. You sure did, Grant laughed. It was a tight squeak, old boy. I never thought I'd get you through. Played out. I can't understand it. Cantwell prided himself on his strength and stamina. Therefore, the truth was unbelievable. He and Mort had long been partners. They had given and taken much at each other's hands. But this was something altogether different. Grant had saved his life, at risk of his own. The older man's endurance had been the greater, and he had used it to good advantage. It embarrassed Johnny tremendously to realize that he had proved unequal to his share of the work, for he had never before experienced such an obligation. He apologized repeatedly during the few days he lay sick, and meanwhile Mort waited upon him like a mother. Cantwell was relieved when at last they had abandoned camp, changed guides at the next village, and were on their way along the coast, for somehow he felt very sensitive about his collapse. He was, in fact, extremely ashamed of himself. Once he had fully recovered, he had no further trouble, but soon rounded into fit condition and showed no effects of his ordeal. Day after day he and Mort traveled through the solitudes, their isolation broken only by occasional glimpses of native villages, where they rested briefly and renewed their supply of dog feed. But although the younger man was now as well and strong as ever, he was uncomfortably conscious that his trailmate regarded him as the weaker of the two and shielded him in many ways. Grant performed most of the unpleasant tasks and occasionally cautioned Johnny about overdoing. This protective attitude at first amused, then offended Cantwell. It galled him up until he was upon the point of voicing his resentment, but reflected that he had no right to object, for, judging by past performances, he had proved his inferiority. This uncomfortable realization forever arose to prevent open rebellion, but he asserted himself secretly by robbing Grant of his self-appointed tasks. He rose first in the mornings, he did the cooking, he lengthened his turns ahead of the dogs, he mended harness after the day's hike had ended. Of course, the older man objected, and for a time they had a good-natured rivalry as to who should work and who should rest. Only it was not quite so good-natured on Cantwell's part as he made it appear. Mort broke out in a friendly irritation one day. Don't try to do everything, Johnny. Remember, I'm no cripple. Huh, you proved that. I guess it's up to me to do your work. Oh, forget that day on the pass, can't you? Johnny grunted a second time, and from his tone it was evident that he would never forget. Unpleasant though the memory remained. Sensing his sullen resentment, the other tried to rally him, but made a bad job of it. The humor of men in the open is not delicate. Their wit and their words become coarsened in direct proportion as they revert to the primitive. It is one effect of the solitudes. Grant spoke extravagantly, mockingly, of his own superiority in a way which ordinarily would have brought a smile to Cantwell's lips, but the latter did not smile. He taunted Johnny humorously on his lack of physical prowess, 
his lack of good looks and manly qualities, something which had never failed to result in a friendly exchange of badinage. He even teased him about his defeat with the cat, my girl. Cantwell did respond finally, but afterward he found himself wondering if Mort could have been in earnest. He dismissed the thought with some impatience, but men on the trail have too much time for their thoughts. There is nothing in the monotonous routine of the day's work to distract them. So the partner who had played out dwelt more and more upon his debt and upon his friend's easy assumption of preeminence. The weight of obligation began to chafe him, lightly at first, but with ever-increasing discomfort. He began to think Grant honestly considered himself the better man, merely because chance had played into his hands. It was silly, even childish, to dwell on the subject, he reflected, and yet he could not banish it from his mind. It was always before him in one form or another. He felt the strength in his lean muscles, and sneered at the thought that Mort should be deceived. If it came to a physical test, he felt sure he could break his slighter partner with his bare hands, and as for endurance, well, he was hungry for a chance to demonstrate it. They talked little, men seldom converse in the wastes, for there is something about the silence of the wilderness which discourages speech and no land is so grimly silent, so hushed and soundless, as the frozen north. For days they marched through desolation, without glimpse of human habitation, without sight of track or trail, without sound of human voice to break the monotony. There was no game in the country, with the exception of an occasional bird or rabbit, nothing but the white hills, the fringe of alder tops along the watercourses and the thickets of gnarled, unhealthy spruce in the smothered valleys. Their destination was a mysterious stream at the headwaters of the unmapped Kuskokwim, where rumor said there was gold, and whither they feared other men were hastening from the mining country far to the north. Now it is a penalty of the white country that men shall think of women. Cantwell began to brood upon the cat, my girl, for she was the last. Her eyes were haunting, and distance had worked its usual enchantment. He reflected that Mort had shouldered him aside and won her favor, then boasted of it. Johnny awoke one night with a dream of her, and lay quivering. She was only a squaw, he said, half aloud. If I'd really tried, Grant lay beside him, snoring, the heat of their bodies intermingled. The waking man tried to compose himself, but his partner's stertorous breathing irritated him beyond measure. For a long time he remained motionless staring into the gray blur of the tent top. He had played out. He owed his life to the man who cheated him of the cat, my girl, and that man knew it. He had become a weak, helpless thing, dependent upon another's strength, and that other now accepted his superiority as a matter of course. The obligation was insufferable, and it was unjust. The North had played him a devilish trick. It had betrayed him. It had bound him to his benefactor with chains of gratitude which were irksome. Had they been real chains, they could have galled him no more than at this moment. End of chapter 5, part 1. Recording by Kurt Trotwine.